Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus. We're going to go to the end of Exodus 33, and we're going to look at portions of three different uh, passages of Scripture. Exodus 3. Well, this is it. This is the last sermon in Exodus. I've, I've really enjoyed it, but to be honest with you, I'll kind of be glad to get out of it because it's really hard to take a large portion of Scripture and condense it into a sermon. And I'm sure some of you are getting really tired of really long sermons. So, um, but anyway, Exodus 34, show me your glory. Have you ever seen something or experienced something so magnificent that you were left anticipating or longing for that experience again? For me, I think the number one most indescribable experience that I've ever had and ever seen was the total eclipse in 2017. Uh, I've, I've described it to you before, but I, I'll say this. Even three minutes before totality, it was nothing compared to totality. And when totality hit, it was, it, was, it was surreal. The birds had already nested, and it was like a sunrise for 360, or sunset for 360 degrees, and they got cool, and uh, everything, it was just... How many have seen, been in totality? Anybody? Isn't it an experience you've, you want to experience again, right? Well, when it was done, I thought this was completely worth, like three minutes before the total eclipse, I'm thinking to myself, this was not worth driving 10 hours for. But when we got to totality, I'm like, it's so totally worth it. And to be honest with you, I cannot wait for April the 8th, 2024, when it comes through again, Odd thing is, and I didn't know this at the time, the location where I was is going to be a location of total eclipse in 2024. So I'm hoping to catch both total eclipses in the same spot in, in seven years. But if you've ever experienced something that is so magnificent that you, you want to experience it again and can't wait and have that longing and thirst or anticipation of it, then you can understand Moses when we read the next few verses of Scripture. So if you'll stand with me, we'll begin reading in chapter number 33 and verse number 17 of Exodus. And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that I have spoken to you I will do. And he's talking about forgiving. I will, I will do for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. Where on earth did that come from? <laughs> right? He's talking about forgiving children. You're the intercessor. And all of a sudden, right in the middle of it, Moses said, Hey, show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take my hand away, and I will sh shall, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Our Heavenly Father, this is the third time I've prayed this today. Lord, first of all, I ask that you, your Holy Spirit, will implant in us a desire to see your glory, your magnificence, your honor, who you are in all of your being. 
I pray also that you will not only put that desire in us, that we will act upon that desire and we will behold God through his word in all his glory. And Lord, my third prayer is that we in turn will reflect that glory to an ever-increasing degree. Amen. Thank you so much. Those who know God long to experience more of his glory. Moses made an audacious request. He said, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Moses wanted to see the radiance and the splendor of God. Now now think about what he was asking. Had he already seen the glory of God? He had, hadn't he? He saw it in the burning bush. That was his initial encounter with God in his glory. He saw the glory of God in the cloud that protected the Israelites from the Egyptians. He saw the cloud, the same cloud that was on the mountaintop in the tent of meeting. He saw the glory of God through all the plagues and all the uh, miracles. He saw the glory of God in the crossing of the Red Sea. And yet, Moses longed for more. He had not seen enough. No taste of the glory of God made satisfied him he just wanted more of that taste and that is true of everyone who's ever experienced the glory of god if you are saved today you have that experience in verse number 19 god agreed to make him look at what he says make all my goodness pass before you now what does that mean now think with me we hear glory of god God responds to saying, my goodness shall pass before you. And then um, we know that Moses was not allowed to directly gaze upon God because in verse number 23, he says, then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Here's the question, does God have a hand? No. Does God have a face? No. Does he have a back? No, why? Because he is a spirit. He is a spirit. These are called anthropomorphisms, anthropomorphic language. I'll explain more in just a minute about all this. But Moses was allowed a fleeting glimpse of the hindquarters of God's glory. In other words, to see God's back was to have some lesser experience of his glory, but that was what Moses longed for. We're here on earth, and we get to have a lesser experience of God's glory, and yet those lesser experiences cause us to have an inner thirst for more and more of his glory, doesn't it? That's the promise. Now I'm going to show you the glimpse. Turn to chapter 34, verse number 1. What exactly is this glory? Well, the answer is found in the fulfillment of the promise here in verse number 30 or chapter 34 verse number 1 the lord said to moses cut for yourselves two tablets of stone like the first now let me just say this the first set of stones god made he actually cut the stones god did and i will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to mount sinai and uh, present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, 
And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut the two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him. Now here's the proclamation. Ready? The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and children's children to the third and the fourth generation. There is the manifestation of the glory of God right there, and he lays it all out for us there on Mount Sinai. The next morning, Moses made the trek back up to Mount Sinai, didn't he? I don't know how many times, I'd have to count, how many times he's already been up and down, but it's a lot, especially for a guy that's 81 years old, maybe 82 by this time, but around 81. And he went as high as he could go, and that still was not high enough because God had to come down to meet Moses on Mount Sinai. There's a picture there, isn't there? God descended. And, and the verse tells us the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And there is the glory of God right there. It's his name. Look back at chapter 33 in verse number 19. Look at Exodus 33, 19. He said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's my name. That's, that's my glory. That's my goodness. And so when the Bible speaks of God's name, it's always more than just a simple title. It's not, you know, oh, there's Joe over there. That's the name he's known by. Or if, if somebody's a medical doctor, there's, there's uh, Dr. Wannabe or whoever else it is. That's not a title. God's name stands for his entire being. It's his nature. It's who he is. And so when, when God passed by Moses and said, the Lord, the Lord, he was revealing himself as the God of creation and redemption. The God who saves, who made his people. And in order to give God a, or Moses a fuller revelation of his goodness, he went on to explain the meaning of that name because we need it as well, don't we? The meaning of his name. I'm going to say something to you. I think the, the next portion that we're going to read is one of the most important verses in all of Scripture. The next couple of verses. And the reason I say that, it's, it's quoted or referred to dozens and dozens of times in Scripture. Look at verse number 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That's the glory of God. It's who he is, glorious. He's compassionate. The word uh, compassionate uh, in the SV, it's, it's, he's called merciful. 
He says, the Lord merciful. The root word is, is sympathy. He's sympathetic with our weakness. Listen to Psalm 103 and verse number 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He's compassionate. He's sympathetic. He, he understands our weakness. We have not a high priest who is not uh, sympathetic to the feeling of our infirmities, right? He was tempted in all points as we are yet without sin. And so therefore, he can go to the Father and he can say, I understand this. I went through this. I can have sympathy. That's the kind of God that we serve, right? He's gracious. The word means undeserved favor. You know, people, and they're ignorant when they say this, people often say they want God to give them what they deserve. If, if they were to do that, if he were to do that, we would all perish in our sins. But God does something better, doesn't he? He does something far better. Rather than giving us what we deserve, he gives us something that we do not deserve. And that is the free gift of salvation, the free gift of his grace. Salvation, your salvation is not based upon your merit. It's only based upon God's desire to show mercy. He didn't look down and say, hey, you know that Jared, he's a pretty good guy, I think I'll save him. You know... I really like Mike over there. Mike's just a wonderful guy. He has goats. I'm going to save him too, right? It's none of that. God is gracious. Everything we get from God that's good, we do not deserve. He's slow to anger. There's this, this word translated slow to anger, it's, it's vivid. It's, it's um, a word that means, the older translation said long-suffering. It's slow to anger. It's a slow fuse. There are times when God gets angry, doesn't he? He does get angry. But when I was thinking about this, I don't know if any of you looked outside this morning at 7.30 this morning, the sky was incredible. The, the, there were low clouds, and they were kind of blue, and all of them were outlined with a brilliant orange. I don't know if anybody saw it. It was about 7.30, within just 10 minutes, it was still orange and blue, but it was not as spectacular as it was early. And I thought right there of the verse, the mercies of God are new every day, aren't they? And he's so good. And it doesn't matter if you're a drug cartel or if you're a criminal on death row or if you are the most model citizen this world has ever seen, God's mercies are new every day on you. He shows us his glory and his grace, and we don't deserve anything that we get. Isn't he wonderful? And so he's slow to anger. He, he's not unpredictable or volatile, but when he acts against evil, he does it righteously and deliberately, and he doesn't lose his temper. God doesn't lose his temper. Isn't that great? Thank you. Somebody's uh, responding here today, right? He's also abounding in love and faithfulness. The Hebrew word for love is chesed. It's, it's sometimes translated loving kindness. Now that word, honestly, is a really hard word to translate word for word or even a couple words. It, it needs a full description. If, you, if you've studied foreign languages, you understand that there are words that just don't translate well, right? And so the word... Chesed is a 
commitment that God has made to people in covenant. And here God's covenant is, is, is a covenant love, and it's connected with the Hebrew word for faithfulness, abounding in love and faithfulness. The word is met, and it means truth or truthfulness. And the point is that God always follows through with his love. Now, some of you are just were pretty rotten this week. Maybe even this morning, right? Because we're humans, we sin. Well, guess what? God remains truthful, he, or I'm sorry, God remains true to his love even if you are a knothead. Even if I am sinful, and I am. Isn't that wonderful? I, I, I think about Moses is up on Mount Sinai, and God is proclaiming to him how gracious he is. What had just happened? Do you remember what just happened? The golden calf. You and I would have done if I were God. Okay, this is what I would have done. Oh, so you want the golden calf to provide everything for you. All right, no more manna for you. And by the way, I'm going to stop the water from the rock. Now, think about it. If you are to be completely honest, you would be the same way. <laughs> I know you because you're like me. But God doesn't do that. He kept providing, didn't he? Manna. He kept providing water just day after day after day. It is love without measure, and it's love beyond degree. And he says he's also forgiving. The Hebrew word natsah means to lift or to carry. This gives us a picture of what God does with his, our sin. You know what he does? He lifts our sin. He carries away our sin, the guilt uh, and the burden uh, right off our shoulders. To show how forgiving he is, he lifts Three things that he's willing to forgive. He's willing to forgive iniquity. That's perversity. It's perverse. It's crookedness. He's also willing to forgive transgression. That's that willful sin. You know, when the speed limit says 60 and you drive 75, right? Whatever it is, God tells us not to do something and we do it. And then the word, general word for sin, for everything else that we do, God is willing to forgive it all. Wonderful, wonderful God that we serve. That's the glory of God, isn't it? That's his glory. If God could create beautiful things and then he was unpredictable and angry and we cowered from him, there would be no glory in the beauty that he creates, would there? But the beauty that God creates is even more beautiful because of the beauty of his character. The wonderful truth of the gospel is that the God of the Exodus has given himself to us in Jesus Christ. What God gave to Moses was a definition of his own deity, but it serves as a fair summary of the character of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus compassionate? Yes, he's, he's compassion. Compassion is a word used in Gospels often to describe the way Jesus treated people. When he saw the crowds, he had. Over and over, we see the compassion of Jesus Christ. Is Jesus gracious? The Bible says that he is full of grace and truth. When we speak of his grace, we are mainly speaking of the cross where he died for our sins. God treats us better than we deserve. Rather than making us suffer and die for our sins, he accepts the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. That is grace. Is Jesus patient? 
Yes, he is. He's, he's slow to anger. Does he get angry? Well, he certainly does. Remember when he overturned the tables of the money changers. He's not a little wimp. Jesus was not wimpy, mealy-mouthed teacher. He was a man's man. And if you ever saw uh, the size and scope of the temple courts, and he overturned those money tables in that big court and allowed no one to come in, you know that he's fierce. But at the same time, he's slow to anger. Is Jesus loving and faithful? Yes, again, everything that Jesus did to save us was an act of love. The Bible says this is love. Not that we love God, that he loved us and sent his son an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Is he forgiving? Yes, he's full of forgiveness. He forgave sinners. He forgave tax collectors. He forgave gave fallen disciples. He forgave women caught in adultery. He forgave his enemies. He even forgave the men who nailed him to the cross. And even, he even forgave a thief that was hanging on the cross. Jesus is forgiving. Jesus Christ is the very definition of God. If we take the most important statement of God's identity from the Old Testament, and you just read it in Exodus 34, and compare it to the life of Christ, we see that Jesus Christ is the very God of God. Therefore, when God passed by Moses on the mountain, proclaiming his attributes, he was telling Moses about God the Son. God was preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is a God of compassion and grace, and this was confirmed for Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, wasn't it? Who was there? Moses and Elijah. By the way, he saw him glorified, and there he met the same glorious God whom he had met on the mountain of Sinai. This is the only time. Well, let me say this. I've got to say this. I can't. I told Heather I was going to take this out, but I'm sticking it back in, Heather. <laughs> I want you to think about something for just a minute. Moses desired the glory of God, didn't he? Now, are there times when those who have tasted of God's glory do not desire God's glory. There's an example of it, and this Mount of Transfiguration reminds me of it. Do you remember this guy named Elijah? Just uh, Saturday morning, yesterday morning, I was reading Elijah, First uh, Kings chapter 17, and I started reading the account, and all of a sudden I, I, it occurred to me uh, what was going on? I read everything about Elijah in the Old Testament then yesterday morning, my Bible reading. Elijah, you remember him? Goes to the prophets of Baal. Now, it hasn't rained in three and a half years. What is he thinking? He's thinking, we're going to go up to Mount Carmel. I'm going to show them that Baal is a false god, that the Lord is a true god, and we're going to get rid of Baal worship, and everybody's going to turn to God. Exactly what he thought was going to happen, happened. No fire came from, from Baal, but fire came from God. He killed all the prophets, and then he told Ahab, you better get down to Jezreel because it's about to rain, and it rained, and you know that story. And the next day, he gets this message from who? Jezebel, and she says, I'm going to kill you. 
And, and uh, he runs out into the wilderness where God tells him to go, by the way. God told him to go there, and he sleeps. And he wakes up and he sleeps. Now, a lot of people say, well, Elijah's is really tired. No, I'll tell you what's going on with Elijah. Elijah's depressed. I think Elijah did not get what he thought was going to happen. And his desire was to see all of Israel turn. And Baal worship to be completely wiped out. And when the tables were turned on him, the thing that he really, really desired didn't happen. Because you know what God did? God woke him up one time and said, look, you need to eat again because the journey is too great for you. And he went 40 days and 40 nights to where God told him to go. And where was that? Horeb, the mountain of God, which is what? Mount Sinai. Now, anyone who knows their Old Testament, and Elijah knew his Old Testament, would have known that's the mountain of God, and he should have been like, oh, goody, I'm about to see the glory of God, just like Moses did. Was he that way? When you read the account, God says, I'm going I'm to pass by you. He, hides him, he sits in a cave. It thunders and makes all this noise. The, the, and the account is very clear. He didn't even bother coming out of the cave. Can you imagine that? He came out when there's a still whisper, and the Bible says that there was a, he, he held the cloak over his face. I think the narrative is set up in such a way that Moses did not, or um, Elijah did not want to see God's glory. And there are times when we get so wrapped up in something we want really, really bad that's not God, or we get wrapped up in something else that, that just happens that has distracted our attention, that we no longer want to see the glory of God because we desire something so much more. I think Elijah is an example of that. And here's Elijah with Moses on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he's seeing Jesus in all his glory. Isn't that wonderful? The way God works. Is he merciful and kind and, ju- and everything else? He is. He's one more thing, though, and I, I didn't get to this yet. God is also just. If you look, without this attribute, all the previous attributes mentioned lose their meaning. Look at the second half of uh, Exodus 34, verse number 7. He's, God says this, But who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. God is a God of justice. He must and will punish every single sin. God cannot be God without being just. The very definition of God goes away if He is not just. In fact, it is His justice that gives all the other attributes their fullest expression. One preacher said this. He said, Mercy detached from justice grows unmerciful. That is an important paradox. As there are plants that are, that are on, on the side of a mountain and will only flourish on mountain soil, it appears that mercy will flower only when it grows in the crannies of the rock of justice. One pastor said that. I thought that was really good. God does not let sin go unpunished, and yet this is one of his perfections. In a word, God is righteous. He is a God who punishes. Yes, he punishes sin, but at the same time, he's gracious for those who ask for grace and mercy. Isn't he wonderful? Without the justice of God, the plan of salvation is just ho-hum. 
Because the plan of salvation is the worst news you've ever heard in your life and the best news you've ever heard in your life all in one message. Well, notice something that happened. Skip on down to verse number 29. Moses, the mediator, reflected the glory of God. It says that his face shone. And they were, they were afraid to come near him. What does this tell us about the glory of God? It tells us that he's awesomely and supremely glorious. That God is infinitely holy and righteous and just. He's all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God. And so therefore, listen to this, even the reflection of his glory strikes fear in the heart of sinners. They were, the Bible says, they were afraid to come near him. He was shining the glory of God. What people saw in the face of Moses what is it, wasn't even one millionth of the glory of, of God in his true glory. And when they saw it, they, were, they turned away from him in terror. That's the glory of God. Moses was God's mediator. And as God's mediator, he reflected the glory of God. And all it took was one look at his face. And there could be no doubt that he'd been with God. Isn't that a wonderful picture, by the way? He was shining with the reflected radiance of the divine glory. As he did in his mediatorial work with the veil off, the people could see the glory of God shining through his face, authenticating God's word revealed to the prophet. And so God gave Moses glory so that the people would listen to him as a mediator in the covenant. Of course, you can read what he did, taking the veil on and off and all that sort of stuff. But here's a question I have for you. Do we still see the glory of God's face and God's mediator today? We do, don't we? We see it in the face of Jesus Christ. He is our mediator. The man, he is the man appointed to stand between us and the God for our salvation. How did God authenticate the ministry of Jesus Christ? He did it in a very similar way, what he did for Moses by revealing Jesus' glory as a mediator. Listen to what John said. John 1.14, And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of what? Grace and truth. The very words that we, we heard back in Exodus 34. Hebrews 1.3, He is the radiance of the glory, the exact imprint of the nature of God. Amen. You can read the Gospels and you can know who God is. I, I can't stand this idea that there's the angry God of the Old Testament and the beautiful, just, kind, compassionate God of the New Testament. No, God is all of that. He's angry at sin all the time, but He's also gracious and true and just and kind all at the same time and Moses Moses was the mediator and as God's mediator he reflected the glory of God and all it took was one look at his face to know that he'd been with God he was shining and seeing his glory and we catch the glimpse of the true glory of Jesus Christ in his transfiguration. When Jesus went up on the mountain with some of his disciples, 
There the Bible says, And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. That's what Jesus did on the Mount of Transfiguration. He shined with the glory, not a reflected glory like Moses, the glory of the God who is. And it shows us something about ourselves, and this is really, really important. What does this show us about ourselves? It shows us that God is able to glorify sinners. Amen? Isn't that wonderful? He can glorify you and me. He is able to glorify sinners. And then if he's able to do that, he's able to glorify us, you and me. No one who meets God by faith is ever the same again, are they? Have, are you the same as you were the day of your salvation? Be, one day before you were saved, are you the same as that day? You're not. You are absolutely transformed. No one who meets God by faith is ever the same again because when we see God and we see Him as He is, we become like what He is in the same way that the moon reflects the, the light of the sun. The glory of God shines from us. Certainly, this is why we were made, to give glory to God by reflecting His beautiful light. God made us to be glorious. We have the reflected glory in our lives. Now, how do we get that glory? Is it automatic? Yes and no. There is some automatic. But the Bible says that we are to reflect that glory to an ever-increasing degree every day of our life. And so how do, we, how do we glorify God? We glorify God by looking to Him. And that's what Moses did. He saw God in His glory. And afterward, he wasn't even aware of his own radiance. He wasn't aware of it. And that's the way it is with a believer. When we reflect God's glory, we're not aware of that reflection many times. This is because Moses wasn't looking at himself, was he? He wasn't navel-gazing. He was looking at God. All the time he'd been looking at God, he was so absorbed by God's beauty that nothing could distract him from his gaze. Moses became glorious by taking his eyes off himself and by looking to the triune God. And when he did this, when he did this, he became an entirely different person. Do you want to become an entirely different person? Then get your eyes off yourself and get your eyes on the glory of Jesus Christ. There's a profound spiritual lesson in this. We don't glorify God by looking at ourselves, but by looking to Him. It's so easy. It's easy to get lured into a, a performance-based um, Christian life, isn't it? In uh, seminary, we call it nickels and noses, performance-based ministry. How's your offerings and how's your attendance? We're doing good if the offerings are good. We're doing good if the attendance is up. But either one of those goes south and we've got problems. And we do that too, don't we? Oh, we, we, we look at God. God, you know what? I didn't read my Bible today, so I'm sure you're not going to listen to me. Or better yet, this is what we do. We get a flat tire on the way to work. I didn't read my Bible today. 
that performance-based Christianity, right? That's not the way it works. Yes, for sure, praise God. It's so easy to waste time about wondering what we look like to others. Instead, we should be looking to Jesus Christ, and then we reflect His glory to others. As we look to God, we are transformed by His splendor. And then when people look at us, they will see His glory shining through us. And in order to shine like this, we need to spend time alone with God. By the way, I can tell when you've been with God. It comes out. And you can tell when others have been with God too, can't you? It just comes out. Some people just ooze Jesus Christ, don't they? By the way, those are the ones who I like to be my friends because it rubs off. So. Now turn to chapter number 40. We're going to wrap this thing up. Turn to chapter number 40. We're going to wrap up our whole series of Exodus here. Remember the title? The title is Save for God's Glory. That's the title of our series. <clears throat> God did everything for Israel's good and for His glory. All through Exodus, we see Him working to save His people. And whenever He explains why He is saving them, He says it is for His own glory, doesn't He? Why did, Moses meet with, uh, why did God meet with Moses at the burning bush? So the Israelites would know the Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's what he said, chapter number 7. Why did he cast the armies of Egypt into the depths of the sea? Because he said, I will gain glory through Pharaoh and his army, through the chariots and horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen. It's all for his glory. In response to his mighty deeds of salvation, the Israelites gave God glory. As soon as they passed through the sea, they began to sing the song of the horse and the rider. Exodus 15, he says, The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. And that's what we do here on Sunday mornings when we sing together. We're praising the God of our salvation. And they praised him again when they reached Mount Sinai, where they renewed the covenant and worshiped God as he gave them the law. And they began to work on the tabernacle, the glorious house of God. And this is all keeping in God's plan. This is his plan all along. The people would be saved for his glory. That's the plan. The plan has not changed. You are saved for his glory. Isn't that wonderful? The exodus was all to the glory of God. And so we get to chapter number 40. And we read verse number 1, a significant thing I want to point out to you. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, On the first day of the first month you shall erect a tabernacle of the tent of meeting. In other words, the tabernacle went up on the anniversary of the Exodus. Remember? It's the, it's, it's the first day of the first month. The tabernacle was set up on the anniversary of Israel's Exodus from Egypt one year to the very day. This made a clear connection between what happened at the Red Sea and what happened in the tabernacle. The erection of the tabernacle was a culmination of everything that God had been working for since he brought the people out of Egypt. And I want to show you what happened. Skip on down now to verse number 33. When Moses finished the work of setting up the tabernacle, all the cleansings and all that sort of stuff, 
God's glory came down, verse number 33, and he erected the court around the tabernacle and the altar, set up a screen of the gate of the court. And so Moses finished the work. Moses finished the work. Next verse. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, it would not set out until the day was t- it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night. In the, cl- in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Let me just remind you about the cloud. This is not a dark cloud. This is a cloud of glory. It's a bright cloud, probably white, shining as bright as the sun. It was a cloud of glory over the tabernacle. It's not some dark, a lot of pictures you see is a dark cloud. It wasn't. It wasn't a dark cloud. The glory is the whole godness of God. God has made his glory visible in the resplendent cloud of radiant light. It was this glorious cloud that descended on the tabernacle, filling it with light. This is interesting. I want to point this out. I don't have time to really unpack this in all its fullness, but the word filled there is a word that indicates it was pulsing with radiation. It was a pulsing, you know, like the lightnings and the thunders and all that? It was a a dynamic, pulsing, radiating, uh, light in the tabernacle. It wasn't just some singular, singular bright light. It was, it was something that was, it was dynamic, and, and I don't know how to describe it other than it was pulsing. I'll stop right there. How's that? The tabernacle was full of the radiant display of the God who kept his covenant, who plagued the Egyptians. He gave the Israelites the law. He was a God of mercy who atoned for their sins, a God of holiness who set them apart for service. This great God was present in glory. When the people looked at the tabernacle, they could see that God was in the house. The end of Exodus is moving to this climactic moment when the tabernacle would be finished, when the people would be able to meet their God. But when the moment fully came, the tabernacle was filled with great glory and Moses the mediator was not able to go in. Was he? He couldn't go in. And this is where we learn that it's necessary for anyone who wants to meet with God must come with blood sacrifice for sin because what's the very next book? Leviticus, which shows us if you're going to enter the presence of God, this is what you got to do. And of course, we know the answer. If you're going to enter the presence of God, you have to have blood applied And it's the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life so that you become, instead of dark, stained with sin, you become white as snow. You're declared righteous. You're sanctified. You're holy. And for all of eternity, you will see the glory of God. And the glory in the tabernacle was the climax of Exodus, but it's not the climax of redemption. It's only the first glimmerings of the glory that God has prepared for us because the glory that they saw is only a tiny, tiny fraction of the glory that we see as believers who now live after the coming of Jesus Christ. Is that not true? Isn't it? Think about who Jesus is. This is all about Jesus. Jesus is the Moses of our salvation. He's the mediator. He's the one leading us through the wilderness. 
He goes before God. He's the, our Passover lamb, the sacrifice for our sins. He's our way out of Egypt. It is he who baptizes us in the sea of his grace. Jesus is the bread of the wilderness, isn't it? He's our daily bread, our manna, our provider. He gives us what we need for daily life. He's our voice from the mountain, declaring the law into our lives. Jesus is the altar of our burning, uh, through whom we offer praise up to God. Jesus is the light of the lampstand, the source of our life and light. Jesus is the basin of our cleansing, the sanctifier of our souls. Jesus is our very great high priest who prays for us at the altar of incense. Jesus is the blood on the mercy seat, the atonement that reconciles us to God. The great God of the Exodus has saved us in Jesus Christ. That's why, since glory is one of God's essential attributes, when God caused all his fullness to dwell in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. His glory. Glory is the only Son of God, of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus Christ is our tabernacle, and as our tabernacle, he is full of the glory of God. And let me say something about the tabernacle. Did you notice that there's no lights in the Holy of Holies? Why? The glory is there. There's no need for light. The glory is there. Understand? It's not dark in there. It's light in the Holy of Holies. And as we walk in this wilderness way, we're waiting for an even greater glory to be revealed the glory of Jesus Christ, who will come in clouds of the sky with power and great glory. I'm waiting. I cannot wait for that moment. There will be no need for any tabernacle because Jesus is the very presence of God. He's our tabernacle. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. And so the message of Exodus, here it is, and wrap it up. The message of Exodus is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Once we were in bondage to sin, enslaved in its tyranny, but, but through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, our Passover lamb, he has delivered us, hasn't he? From the Egypt of our sin. And now he's leading us through this earthly wilderness with all its difficulties and dangers. The great God of the Exodus, he will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He gave us our, our, his comforter. And, and in the church, he set up a sanctuary where we can come into his presence and worship. And one day, one day, that great day, the day of the Lord, he will come down and he will take us into glory that will never end. And everyone who trusts in him will be saved for the glory of God. And that's Exodus in a nutshell. But some of us, as I said earlier, don't long for the glory of Christ like we should. Jesus made it very clear in the parable of the soils that one of the things that can happen to a Christian, by the way, the soil was not good soil, the thorny ground soil. That was an unbelieving soil. Most unbelievers, uh, or most, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting tripped up here. That soil was a picture of unbelievers who do not want to come to Christ because 
The cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches keeps them from it. But the principle there is this. The cares of this world and deceitfulness of riches will cause us to not see the glory of God. Because Jesus said, Jesus said the word is not fruitful in that life. Didn't know what it said? That particular life. And dear believer, if you're in the cares of this world, you're into the riches of this world, you're into the things of this world, the word is being choked out of your life. And so now is the time to pray, Lord, show me your glory. Don't you want to see the glory of God? It starts. It starts right away. You've heard it in God's word today. Tomorrow, you open your Bibles and you read the glory of God in Scripture. And you listen to the glory of God in sermons. And Tuesday, you open your Bible and you read about the glory of God. And you ask His Holy Spirit, Lord, illumine my heart through your Holy Spirit to see your glory in Scripture. Don't you want that? So the one day, we'll see Him in all His glory. Lord, thank You so much for the glory. It it is hard to not just repeat yourself because you want people to see Christ in all His glory. But I pray that you will help us to see you in all of your glory and grace and truth. In His name we pray. Amen.